Now, today is a very special luncheon. We seek to acknowledge the leaders among us, members and orders of the officer, members and officers rather of the Order of Canada, and we wanted to do so in front of as many students as we could. And to make that possible, we had some very generous sponsors, and I'd like to offer special thanks to those who made our student tables sponsored student tables possible today. Amanda Lang, Borealis, Don Guy, Greg Wong, the Institute of Chartered Accountants of Ontario, Irene David, Jennifer Sloan, Nancy Lockhart, OLG, RBC, Scotiabank, and Susan MacArthur. And today we have students and special guests with us from OCAD University, Riverdale Collegiate Institute, the University of Toronto Faculty of Architecture, Landscape and Design, Diversity and Civic Action, Dr. North Norman Bethune Collegiate Institute, the next 36, University of Toronto School of Public Policy, and the Undergraduate Student Alliance. So I think we accomplished our goal of having a diverse range of students, and we welcome all of you to being here today. Thanks for being with us. Now, on your behalf, I'd like to welcome Rex Murphy to the Canadian Club. Uh, how just does one go about introducing Rex Murphy as that shop-worn cliché goes, I could say he needs no introduction and then just sit down. Uh, but allow me a few words and I guess let me start at the beginning. Most of you know he comes from away, Newfoundland, Canada's easternmost province, our newest province, which depending on who is telling the story, allowed Canada to join it, or it joined Confederation in 1949 reluctantly and perhaps even divisively. But there is nothing reluctant or divisive about one of her favorite sons, Rex Murphy. I think Rex is actually the quintessential Canadian. He's been virtually everywhere in our country, and one of the reasons he needs no introduction is that he knows and has talked with most of us. He is in our cars, in our kitchens, in our living rooms every Sunday afternoon on cross-country checkup. On Thursday evenings, he's in our living rooms or bedrooms with his commentary on the national. And at least once a week, his newspaper column can be found in our family rooms. Rex, I think it's about time you moved out and got your own place. <laughs> he has seen Canadian politics from every vantage point. He has an unblemished electoral record He's lost three times in Newfoundland provincial elections, <laughs> running for both the Liberals and the Conservatives, although not at the same time. In his work, in his travels, in his conversations, he has acquired a sense of this country like few others. He knows Canada and Canadians, our opportunities and challenges. And he deals with all of this and us weekly on cross-country checkup. Rex greets our opinions and comments with patience and grace, and wit and humor, and of course, his unquestioned intellect. So who better than this Rhodes Scholar, respected opinion leader, award-winning writer and broadcaster to celebrate those remarkable Canadians who have been nominated to the Order of Canada, to tell us of the service and the work of these three deserving recipients. Three people who, with very different talents, an artist, an architect, and a social activist, 
have worked so hard to make a difference for Canada, who truly embody the order's motto, they, deserve, they, they, they desired a better country. Rex Murphy, the Canadian Club Podium, Canada's Podium of Record is yours. Thank you very much, Jamie. I don't know if I could have improved on that if, as you probably guessed, I wrote it myself. <laughs> uh, before I do anything at all, I'd just like to say, um, first of all, to the young people that are here, I regret that I am kind of almost mummy antiquity, and that there may be some need of translation from my vast age to your young minds. But it is really, really good to see so many young people in an institution that speaks of time itself. So thank you very much for being here. Uh, the second thing, well, before I forget this, because I will forget things, so I want to thank uh, Lynn, who is the organizer of these things, for enduring patience and uh, monumental ornamental skill, uh, sorry, organizational skills that allowed me to get the day right, the place, and the city, which in my life is a rare occurrence indeed. So thank you very much, Lynn. Now, the third thing I'd like to say is that all that Jamie just told you, of course, is a farcical lie. Uh, we have here this afternoon uh, three people of enormous, uh, almost alpine or Himalayan achievement in fields as diverse, as he points out, as uh, social activism, architecture, and art, all of which, incidentally, are not separated cat categories but blend into each other. These are persons of such excellence and such achievement that even reading their resumes put me into a profound depression. Uh, I have no life. And as far as I can tell, in contrast with the deeds, accomplishments, and creations of these people, uh, I'm not fit to be on the same stage with them. So the only reason that Jamie had me here uh, was because he wanted something of an ultimate contrast. And my reputation as a professional anticlimax ranges from the quite personal to the very public. So I'm really here as someone filling a stage while people of real worth, real integrity, and real accomplishment give you the example of their ways and one hopes through their stories uh, some, some element that makes a connection with you and makes a connection with the country as a whole. Before all three uh, come to the stage, I have just one more thing to correct. Jamie, I think, incidentally, that all of this room, the people in this room, are people of high moral as well as intellectual sensibility. So it's with great regret that I heard Jamie announce that I had indeed, at one point, run in Newfoundland politics. Uh, this is not exactly uh, a felony yet, <laughs> but it operates on the same plane of social esteem as throwing rocks at a convent <laughs> or stealing sheep for the purposes of carnal engagement. <laughs> no, no, no. Newfoundland is a very lonely place. And we have some spectacular sheep. <laughs> no, not true. Uh, it was a, 
a gesture of sanity on the part of the Newfoundland people that the first, I only ran twice since the first time I ran, they rejected me with some kindness, a mere 160 votes. And the second time that I was impertinently enough to ask for their vote the second time, they beat me by, I think, 8,900 and gave me a plane ticket to boot. So the purpose today, can we now ask our people to come up to their chairs? Uh, the purpose of the day is really very simple. Uh, I'm just a turnstile. Uh, I'll ask uh, Ratna and Bruce and Charles to, to, in that order, I'll take this one here, is to introduce these three people. Uh, they've all been distinguished by the highest order that this country has to offer. They are persons, as Jamie has already indicated, of extensive accomplishment in various fields. And one of the purposes of the day is to get some sort of personal connection between the work that they do, the fact that their country, this is a big thing even though in these ironic times we don't take distinction and achievement much as we should, their country has acknowledged the excellence and force of what it is that they do. And I'd like generically, I'd like to find out how the actual award made some difference to them, but I'd also much more to the point want to find out what it is about their work that gives them the drive and energy that they, that they have and that speaks to some degree of our common, uh, of our common community. And before I, I, I will start with Ratna, before I go, I won't be giving huge biographies. Uh, their accomplishments are so numerous that resumes alone would keep us till the hour of the, of the camera is done. I will point out to Ratna though, uh, we do share one characteristic. Uh, I was uh, all of two years of age when Newfoundland made the tragic decision uh, to rescue the rest of Canada from its many woes. So I, like you, am an immigrant. And when I first came to Toronto, I felt the full force of that. Uh, it was a kind of a culture shock. Uh, I think it was because I had culture. But we... <laughs> <laughs> but let's let that pass. <laughs> There's, there is no question uh, that Ratna Amidvar is herself a person of extraordinary energies and extraordinary reaches. Other people on this, I'll call it a panel, uh, work in various materials or various mediums. She works at the texture of what it is that constitutes this country and the renewing of that texture. She works with those who come to Canada. She is herself an immigrant. And she has done so many things from the June Caldwood lectures to special articles in the Globe and Mail that again, to unfold them all is a pointless thing. I'd just like to, and then I will sit down, I'd just like to ask Ratner first off, what it meant when you, who came to this country within two decades, are acknowledged by the highest authorities that we do have, and they're, they're serious authorities, for the work that you have done, and what is it in the work that you have done that is most central to you? Well, I, I, I want to talk about the day I got the call uh, from the Governor General's office. Uh, and as any other immigrant, there's a healthy streak of, uh, of, uh, of concern when the Governor General calls you. <laughs> I thought I had done something wrong. Uh, uh, and I frankly didn't believe uh, the phone call. And I, I said, no, you must be kidding me. And then I reflected on it later and after I got the award and, and, and the great honor, I, I think the award that I got is a reflection, a proxy for the growing awareness that Canada and Canadians themselves have that the future of this country to some large extent is predicated 
on the success of its newest citizens. So the work I do fits, uh, fits into that narrative that we are trying to define of Canada and, uh, and understanding what I say, which is uh, just as immigrants come and have to work hard and have to learn the ropes and have to learn uh, to wear the proper shoes and boots and learn new ways of doing business, Canada too has to learn and shift and adapt and change itself. And both sides of the equation have to meet in the middle. It can't simply be the sound of one hand clapping. Where do you find, if you find it there, where do you find, because such a work and such a persistence in such a work uh, is a tremendous call on energy, where do you find the emotional commitment to the people that you're dealing with and to the idea of the country? Well, I think I find, first of all, the emotional commitment in my own experience. I, I think that social activism is, is always uh, more grounded when it arises out of the lived experience. But quite frankly, you, you have to look at the energy and uh, the excitement and the innovation uh, that immigrants, you know, the very fact that you pull up your roots and choose to come here mm -hmm. uh, is in and of itself a journey of entrepreneurship. Yeah, it, is. it is an incredible journey. It has incredible excitement and energy. And it's that energy, I think, that I feed off and, and others around me, many of whom are in this audience, feed off okay. too. One thing I, I should have mentioned when I was up there, but I am so scattered, I'm not even as good as a sieve. Uh, at some point, uh, after a couple of rounds here, I will invite any of the people in the audience within the limits of the time that we have uh, to get some questions. So if you want to be thinking slightly in advance of something that will deeply embarrass either one of our guests, uh, give it your best effort. Uh, I'm going to go now to our second, Bruce Kuwabara, uh, listing off just the buildings that this gentleman uh, has put on the face of this earth in itself is an astonishment. I am, for what it's worth, and it probably isn't much, a great fan of architects and architecture. I think it may be the last heroic art. Uh, epic poetry has been dead since Milton, and the only medium now in which I think you could get an epic sense probably is in architecture. But at the same time, it can be the most familiar and the most welcoming of forms. I have two things I want to ask of you. The first, though, is the one that I did ask you when we spoke by phone, uh, because I thought it's such a powerful connection with the Order of Canada, your family's history, and what it is that you do. Uh, you, you say it so much better than I. Just, just tell me that story again. Well, um, I'm of Japanese uh, descent, and um, you know my parents uh, were interned in the Second World War um, as enemies of Canada. And I, I never really realized what that meant, but I, but, but I do now. And I, I think, you know, it was for quite some time. It was almost for uh, four years. Uh, one of my sisters was born in one of the internment camps in British Columbia. And after the war, my parents uh, took a train across the country uh, eastward, as far from the west coast as they could get, as fast as they could get. Um, and they were, they've never seen Japan. Uh, they were born in Victoria and Vancouver. And they, like I think 26,000 others, uh, were interned for that period of time. And so when they arrived in Hamilton, where I was born, 
I, I really felt uh, very strange. I've, I've got to tell you, it's a really weird uh, feeling, but I, I felt uh, very uncomfortable going to public school, and I, and I always ask my parents, why us? You know, why, why does everyone, why does everyone hate us? And, uh, and I, I hated Canada in return, because you go to school and you think, well, this is just not a good thing for me. And I think I, I told Rex that I've spent most of my life uh, constructing my relationship to the country and the idea of being Canadian, and it's taken a lifetime to do that. And I see architecture, and I know there are a lot of architecture students in the room, but you know, architecture is wonderful because it's the vehicle through which you engage and understand the world, and, and you can create the vision of the world you want to live in. And, and, and that's what motivates me, that I actually, every time I get to do a project, I, I, I just think about, uh, and I've had great opportunities to, to think about being Canadian and being an architect and trying to create architecture that might stand for something that would, that would actually tie into a lot of the themes that I think you were talking to me about before. But when we did the Canadian Embassy in Berlin, I mean, we were asked time and again, what, what's the identity of Canada? And, I, and at the end of rounds of discussions with really important people, our ambassador and minister of foreign affairs, I came to the conclusion it had to do with a certain sense of openness, and it's open heart, and it's, it's open access, it's, it's an openness, psychological openness, and I, I think that's so fundamental that if we ever close down, that will be the end of the country. You know, and I, so, so that's what I would start with. How does, it, how does it feel to have moved from, and it's your own word and it's the right one, because if you felt it, that's what it is, uh, hate for the country that did such injury, and to get to a point where, with all the recognition that comes from uh, being an officer, you're one of the people that is planting the imagery of this country for another 100, 200, 300 years. So whatever it is that the rest of us come to love from there, is partially going to be both fingerprint and DNA from your mind. That's a fantastic, uh, <clears throat> I, I mean, it's a fantastic thing uh, to do architecture, to make the world you want to live in. And, uh, you know, it's project after project. We, we are, we're working now in Ottawa on the Global Center for Pluralism for the Aga Khan. And, and I think it's remarkable that uh, he chose Canada for an institution that would actually study pluralism and all of its dimensions. And when he was in Toronto, he said at a lecture that uh, the concept of pluralism, which I think is fundamental to our democracy, is not something that you're born with. It's not natural, that it's something that you have to study and learn. You actually have to, to be ingrained in a different way. And I think that's fundamental. So, so when we're doing all of these projects, I mean, there are a number of themes about thinking about how to live uh, in, in, in the world you want to live in that I think are, for me, uh, top of mind every, every time out. And I think, I think our work is different because of that, the way our practice is, is, is set up. Uh, you know, I have two women partners who are pretty incredible, and a male partner, and it, it's just a different kind of uh, dynamic. That's all I would say. It's a okay. 21st century dynamic. Thank you very much. I knew that I was going to like Charles Pachter uh, even before I probably knew his name because I saw the picture with the moose. And of course, I didn't recognize the other creature that was on the back until some time later. 
Uh, I come from Newfoundland where I mentioned sheep already. We also have relationships with moose, uh, <laughs> if you're in it. We introduced moose in Newfoundland and now they virtually are the equal of the native population. So I'm closer to your work perhaps than to Bruce's, but you'll understand why. But Charles Pachter's work again is universally known. Uh, he, the phrase, the, the word which is a cliche, but you cannot find any other one to fit it. He has the gift of iconic statement through the works that he does create. He's also another miracle. Uh, most of you are young and the idea of art will obviously come with a very uh, grievous face, long beard and furrowed temples, but actually art from lyric poetry, even to epics, has episodes of deepest humor. Humor is a path just as much as the sublime. And I'm gonna ask Charles Pachter now, what did it mean to him? Because he's touched both the populist and artistic chords. What did it mean to him when uh, the great blade came down upon the shoulder? I'm being metaphorical here, of course and you were recognized uh, by your fellow citizens and by your distant sovereign. Well, it's wonderful listening to my co-panelists here talk about their origins. And one of the things I think we all share as Canadians that at some point we were all immigrants to this place. Doesn't matter where you're from or what your background is. In my case, my little immigrant grandmother came from a little town on the Black Sea to Edmonton in 1913. My mother was born in Edmonton in 1915 and the family immigrated back to Toronto in the 20s. I was born in the middle of the Holocaust. Uh, my parents named me Charles Stewart, just to be sure, and we moved to an Anglican neighborhood uh, in North Toronto. We were the only Jewish family on the street. We were not religious, we were like a Woody Allen family. And I came home one day and I said to my mom, how come we don't have pictures of the baby Jesus up on the wall like all the other kids? <laughs> And my mother said to my dad, Harry, say something. You tell him. <laughs> and my little immigrant grandmother, who was trying so hard to assimilate, called me Charles because she thought Charles was plural. Uh, there was no such a thing as multiculturalism in the 50s. If you were not in my neighborhood, Anglican or Wasp in North Toronto, you were different. And people tried so hard to... Um, assimilate to the majority culture. Today, Canada is a miracle. It's the envy of the world. And at the time that I grew up, it was a very different place. When I became a member of the Order of Canada in 1999, I got a phone call. This is the absolute truth. In Vaughan Road Collegiate in grade nine in 1957, I got D minus in art from Miss Hudgens. <laughs> She would put a daffodil up in the front of the class and bang a buzzer and go, start, work! And we'd have to draw the daffodil, and at the end, you'd have to hold up your daffodil, and she'd say, what would you give that out of 10, dear? And I said, nine. She said, no, two. Thank you, sit down. <laughs> the phone rang, and honest to God, the voice, the squeaky little voice said, hello, Charles, dear, do you know who this is? I couldn't believe it. It was Miss Hudgens after 50 years, <laughs> and she said, I always knew you had it in you, dear. <laughs> Thanks, Ms. Hudgens. The reason I became so fascinated with Canada, being the grandson of immigrants and living in this Wasp neighborhood in North Toronto, was by some fluke. My aunt heard on the radio that the CBC was looking for a kid to play a lost boy at the CNE. It was August in 1947. It was the National Film Board at its height. P.S. 
You can see this movie on YouTube. I'm telling you all about it. It's one of the kitschiest, funniest movies ever made by the National Film Board. It's called Johnny at the Fair, and I was Johnny. They let me loose at the CNE for two weeks, and I got this illusory impression then that everything Canadian was glamorous. I shook hands with Mackenzie King. I got kissed by Barbara Ann Scott. I sat on Joe Lewis's lap. He had just won the World Boxing Championship. And most important of all, I pet a moose on the Midwest. Wow. There was a fellow from Northern Ontario, a little town called Gogama. You, that's the beauty of the world we're living in now. You can go on Google. Joe Laflamme was his name. Who said Canadians didn't have eccentrics? He looked just like Moses or Jesus. He went to Broadway in 1946 in New York with his pet moose. 100,000 people showed up in Times Square to see this guy. He was one of the highlights at the X. I can still smell the fur and the sawdust on this creature. It was a lady moose because she didn't have antlers. Long story short, I grew up in the middle of the pop art world in Canada. I could never understand why this country, we were brainwashed into thinking that everything that came from elsewhere was consequential and everything that came from here wasn't. I couldn't understand. I started to read about people like Louis B. Mayer who left Glace Bay, Nova Scotia to found Hollywood. I thought about the whole colonial mentality. I was fascinated by the monarchy. Why? In school we were taught the moose was the monarch of the north. My dad drove a monarch. Does anybody remember the Canadian Mercury? So, and then I was only 10 when the coronation came and the CBC brought the tapes over. It was one of the great moments of Canadian, colonial, imperial, British, Hollywood extravaganza. This beautiful young woman who was like totally fabulous to watch and her every move and the rest of it. But I still grew up wondering, to this day, as much respect as I have for the entire royal family, what is it about our country that means that we haven't found our own way to express our head of stateness? It hasn't happened yet. I was thrilled with Adrian Clarkson. I was thrilled with Mikhail Jean. I thought Canada had finally gotten its act together. I love this Rosedale Anglican British family. Don't get me wrong. I think they're amazing. And I think they've had their problems. And because of the way the world is today, their personal problems are out there for the world to see. You can only have admiration for Elizabeth, this woman who's been on the throne for 60 years. But you have to ask yourself, as the French say, qui sommes-nous? Is there any hope that we may have in the future to move on? And my work has probed the psyche of this for the last 45 years. When I first put Queen Elizabeth on a moose in 1973 as Queen of Canada, she was coming to, Shaw, to the Shaw Festival to open the new Shaw Festival Theatre. My dealer at the time refused to show the paintings. He said, I don't have to show these and I don't have to tell you why. I lived on Shaw Street. I opened my own show called The Other Shaw Festival. It was a 70s happening. My friend Larry Brenzel had a Rolls Royce. His wife sat in the back with a glove and a hat going like this all afternoon in the Rolls Royce. Margaret Atwood poured tea on the lawn. Joyce Whelan was there. Greg Kerner was there. It was a 70s happening. Um, since then, the image of the Queen on the Moose has become a generic piece yeah. of Canadian post-pop. That's the one question yeah. I want to ask before I really yeah. do turn it over to the audience. What, and it's, it's a serious question. What does it feel like to be able to uh, have more than once pluck out of the interior, out of the imagination, emblems 
that really do speak. They speak so strongly to everyone. What's the gift, or what does it feel like, or just give me just 30 well, seconds. Well, ironically, on the one, the one um, icon that all Canadians can share is the moose. I saw the moose as this majestic, solitary creature living in the forest that was a great allegory for the Canadian identity. In fact, the sad thing with Newfoundland is six moose were brought over from, from New Brunswick in 1906. The rest is history. There are over 140,000 moose there. There are no predators in Newfoundland. There are no wolves. So it's a serious problem. But I have seen one in the woods, and you feel like you've seen the face of God when you run up against a moose. I'm a cheerful atheist, but you know what I mean. Um, when, you see this, when you see this creature, this as big as an elephant, plodding through the, the, the swamps and, the, and stuff. It really is quite fascinating. And there's a regal aspect to it. That's the iconic version. Yeah. Well, I also recommend, before I go to the question, that when you leave here, go online and find the picture of Camilla assisting Charles uh, to the back of the moose. Yes. It's a study in the finest awkwardness the that you've ever one. seen. It's on my website. It's really, really good. It's called and Practice I have promised that we would allow some people in the audience to have at least a go at these distinguished guests. So. Whoever's there first, please stand and shout your question. Yes, go ahead. Hi there, my name is Jamie. I'm from the School of Public Policy and Governance, and I just wanted to say thank you um, for allowing us all to attend this event today. And um, I had a question um, for Ms. Omnivar. Um, the Globe and Mail, as you probably know, the Globe and Mail recently made a call um, to the government of Canada to increase immigration levels from around 250,000 to 400,000 um, new immigrants to Canada each year. I was just wondering, given what we know about some of the poor economic and employment outcomes for recent immigrants to Canada, how do we both accept more immigrants and also ensure that um, everyone coming to Canada has an equal opportunity to participate and, and thrive? Thank you for that question. That's an excellent question, and I'm not sure we know exactly what the right answer would be. But I would say to you that the story of Canadian immigration has been the story of short-term uh, 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 turbulence and sacrifice and long-term success. Uh, and that is the narrative. Charlie has told it in his way. Bruce has told it in his way. And the narrative goes something like this. Come to Canada, work hard. Your children will succeed. And, and I think that is a narrative we, many of us can, can uh, relate to. However, I, I, I don't think it is possible to build uh, a strong Canada only for the future. We have to build a strong Canada today. Um, and that tension between short-term outcomes and long-term outcomes has to be negotiated. And I believe we can do both things if we think thoughtfully, not only about the right kind of immigrant, and certainly there is a lot of stress, especially in Ottawa, from coming from Ottawa, about if we fix the immigrant, we will fix the outcome. And I think that is true to some extent, but it misses the other picture. We also have to work on ourselves as a society. Uh, you know, the, the experiences that some of the other panel members have talked about are, are an indication that we are not perfect, uh, that we have to shift and change as, as the world around us does. So I think some of the answers will be found in bringing immigrants in who are um, better able to quickly adapt, but at the same time, changing some of the systemic um, uh, conditions that have led to short-term and long-term failures. Okay, right now, thanks. Our next question is, there you go. 
Hello, my name is Dina. I'm a graduate student from the University of Toronto. I'm studying architecture. I have a question for Bruce Kumambara. Um, your practice, KPMB, has really um, one of the few architectural Canadian practices that is renowned and recognized and respected in, on an international scale. Other than otherness, what um, strategies have you used to ensure that Canadian architecture leaves a stamp on the global um, design scene? Well, I think other architects historically have been recognized abroad. I mean, architects like Arthur Erickson, but there was a different model. It was a kind of heroic model of usually uh, a man. Uh, and I think our practice is different. Um, and the way we think of ourselves operating in the world is different. I think it's influenced by the way we're structured. Um, believe me, I grew up with two sisters, so I had a lot of training in how to deal with two women partners, and I think it affects the way our work has turned out. I think our, our, our problem-solving abilities are different. I think they're very Canadian, actually, and uh, I've been spending a lot of time thinking about our ability to solve problems uh, in a way that, that, that really understands the true complexity of the issues. Un unlike Americans, for example, I think Cana the edge we have uh, and the innovation that may be truly Canadian is to have uh, an imagination that can, can look at a problem from all sides and come at it. It's what Roger Martin talks about in Opposable Mind, that you can actually see maybe two very polarized uh, positions, but by being what I'd say Canadian rather than rushing to judgment and, and putting a stake in the sand and saying this is the right answer, that you actually step back and try to understand the totality of that issue and you may come to some new kind of synthesis, which is a much better way forward. And, and of course, it's, it's in consensus and all of those kinds of notions of being Canadian. But I'm actually talking about the trigger point being in the Canadian imagination, in the mind of the individual, not just the consensus. Because I think if you begin there, you might be able to move towards a real consensus. So in terms of what the world needs, I think it needs a lot more thinking power and, and, and the power of thinking that I, that I think is germane to our existence here. And it's a dynamic situation in Canada. We have to be very aware of how good it is here. Like it's an amazing country, you know, and, and we, we get to experiment with it every single day. I vote because my parents were not allowed to vote. You know, to me, the vote is the thing we should exercise first. That's, that's the one thing you have. And, and so for young people, I would say, you know, uh, take advantage of the luxury of living in a democracy. Thank you, Bruce. There's another, okay, great. Question over this way. Yeah. Hi, um, question from Mr. Pachter. Um, being a budding artist myself and an OCAD student, I can only look at your accomplishments as a sort of future pipe dreams of my own. Uh, and it truly makes me wonder what wisdom you could impart if you could go back in time and speak to yourself when you were at my level or even the level of some of my um, fellow peers here? I truly think your generation has much bigger challenges because of things like Facebook and Twitter where everybody's awesome and everybody's fabulous and there's a dearth of discernment as to what really is spectacular versus what is merely passable. I think we have a plague of something called sincere mediocrity. And we have to deal with it in a major way because many people are not willing to admit 
I mean, how many people can paint sunflowers? You know, and, and have all their relatives say, oh, you're so awesome. <laughs> you know, like, wow. So, th that, but this is what your generation is having to deal with, this, this incredible sea change in uh, accessibility to everything. Who would have guessed that there may be not 10,000 or 100,000, there are probably a million websites out there with artists. It, there was a time when it was an elite pursuit. Um, my advice to you is, and this is just me, I'm being totally subjective, do something mischievous. Do something that's going to irk the press. When I, uh, when I did The Queen on the Moose, uh, it was uh, trumped up in newspaper headlines all around the world saying, Canada in royal rage over Queen on Moose, monarchists threaten to slash canvases, artists warn to stay indoors. The whole thing was nonsense, it was UPI and Reuters, but it was everywhere from Los Angeles to Johannesburg and it became the expression Queen on Moose became generic. P.S. I never sold one painting. Okay? <laughs> that was in 1973. The other thing is, and I'm going to say it out loud and complain, in another country where there would be a more sophisticated kind of support network for other than Group of Seven Decorative Landscape, which is our, which is our legacy, great paintings that they are, the establishment, don't you think the Queen on the Moose should have been in the National Gallery years ago as a piece of post-colonial pop art? It's not there. It'll be there when she's gone and I'm gone, but we have to look at this. As a young artist, I say to you, think carefully about what's going on out there and what can you and only you perceive examining the psyche of this fabulous nation, the second largest landmass in the world, underpopulated and not that sophisticated when it comes to contemporary visual art. It's tough on the living artists. Our, our uh, contemporaries in other countries, whether it's in Berlin or New York or London or Paris, can you imagine these stories and auctions of paintings selling for 50 and 60 million pounds? For a Canadian living artist to get $30,000 for a painting after 50 years yeah. of work, you're at the top of your game. That's what we're having to deal with. My advice, quite simply, do something mischievous. Yep. <laughs> uh, I'll take one more from the audience, and then I'm going to do a one, two, three with the panel, and uh, we'll declare things more or less over at that point. One more from the audience. Are we all? Uh, Charles, you may have shocked them. Uh, I'm going to pick up on something Charles said, and I'm going to give each of you just about, it's about a minute each. Uh, I like very much, you said, this kind of you know, cultured mediocrity. Uh, the Order of Canada, I'm going to go back to the theme of the day here. The Order of Canada and the acknowledgement, even if it comes uh, via the state, that there are practitioners in their various fields. They can be in human fields, artistic or otherwise, that by their example and by their craft achieve an excellence. Uh, I want to know how much the, the very drive for excellence, even if it is in fields that are not artistic, is something that each of you personalities has, has a, as a fundamental, as a fundamental impulse in what you do. I'll start again where I began with Ratner. I don't think I had the fundamental drive until okay. I came to Canada and I perceived what was going to happen to me unless I developed uh, a, a, a push and a passion not only to change my own life, but to change the life of people around me. Because I could see very clearly that without challenging the system uh, in different ways, 
that it was going to actually challenge me to such an extent that I and others around me would fail. So that has been a fundamental driver of the work I do. I have to also say another fundamental driver is that I actually can see success. I can imagine success. I'm not working on an issue that is so difficult, you know, let, let's talk about other difficult issues. I can actually see that success is within our grasp because Canada is an outlier in, in this field of inclusion, diversity, multiculturalism. Much as we have lots of work to do okay. from the outside, the, the view in, of Canada and in Canada is excellent. So I think the, 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 the personal experience bound up with uh, a path that okay. I can see leading to success is what drives me. Thank you very much. Bruce, in your field, again, it must, I, I understand, but as a total outsider, looking at things that have been made by other people, other great imaginations, how do you get the simple courage to put yourself in straight competition with them and, and actually achieve it. That's excellence at the highest level. Well, um, first of all, there was one role model, and it was Raymond Moriyama, um, very important. You know, uh, he was dating one of my aunts. You know, could have been his nephew, maybe somehow. Um, no, but I, but I also, I, I just think that the. Um, in architecture, it's such an incredible, it's just a, such an incredible discipline. That's all I can say, that it, it, it's, it's so amazing. And I think there are others like it, like music or, or dance or art. And, you know, you're, you know my father was a, a Buddhist, and he said, you know, you are, the Buddhist conception of life is your one wave on an ocean, and as one wave passes, another wave is forming. And, and, and what, after he said that, you kind of are more relaxed about your position relative to the ocean, <laughs> relative to all the other waves. That's because right. if you always think about yourself in relationship to, I don't know, Frank Lloyd Wright or, or Frank Gehry, I, I, I think it, 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 it's, it's, it's not a, a good beginning point. I think they're, they're, they're very inspiring architects, and I'm, I'm totally, I'm totally interested in uh, architecture of all kinds, but I think everyone has their own okay. way of, of, of putting it together. Uh, and that's, that's, the, that's the freedom that you actually have to actually express yourself within the bigger field, the ocean of culture. And uh, you know, I, I, I'd like Charlie eventually to talk about that because, and how you see yourself relative to others in the same field. And, the, and whether the work is really great, I mean, we get feedback. I mean, I, I really, it really matters to me if sure my does. kids like the work. Sure my mother, if she likes the work, it's really important to me. Uh, Bruce, we're getting close to the end in your particular, I'll let you frame in a sense your own question, but I'd like to leave excellence at the center of it. The acknowledgement of excellence for its own sake, this is me speaking, is an extremely good idea. We don't do enough of it in this country, but the second part is, excellence in the operation of the imagination. The imagination is, to a degree, the thing that will shape and give texture to this country. In a minute or there, your thoughts on tangential well, moments. Uh, one of the great strengths of this country, in case you didn't know, is the butter tart. <laughs> Canada invented the butter tart. It doesn't exist anywhere else. I did a series of paintings called State of the Tarts, 
And uh, I would like to open up a new gallery called the Tart Gallery of Ontario. <laughs> Eat your heart out, Matthew Teitelbaum. Um, but in fact, I've done several paintings of the butter tart because you all know what a good one is. It has to be burnt and crispy on the outside, chewy as you get towards the center, runny in the middle with currants. It's paradise, right? Yes. So I've invented a new, we already have the Order of Canada. I have invented the Order of Aurelia, which is a crushed butter tart tin with crumbs and a little <laughs> ribbon. So that's my idea of Canadian excellence. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I'll just add that with the new legislation that is being proposed for the uh, workers of the street, you may have your, your tart gallery sooner than you think. Uh, I'd like to thank everybody here, uh, but especially the panel who's been so uh, obviously engaging and cooperative. Uh, I think it is a good thing, Jamie's idea of highlighting uh, the excellent people uh, that this country has. And to all of you who came and saw these three, uh, thank you also for attending. You're very patient. Rex, on behalf of the Canadian Club, I want to thank you very much for being with us today. Such an engaging conversation, and I'm sure we could have been here for many more hours. Thank you very, very much. When the Order of Canada was established in Canada's centennial year, many of us wondered what it, how it would work. Would it work? How deserving would recipients actually be? And over time, it has taken on a significance and a pride of its own. And so today, we all know a little bit more about the Order of Canada and three of its most deserving recipients. Thank you for that. The three extraordinary Canadians you introduced us today, Rex, to exemplify the dedication and service meant to be recognized by the Order of Canada. Rex, Retina, Bruce, Charles, thank you for being here today. You have our very best wishes for all you do in the future. Thank you. Well, Jennifer, thank you uh, very much uh, for, for the thanks, and thanks Rex and Ratna and Bruce and uh, Charlie for uh, really a true demonstration of Canadian excellence at lunch today. And one more round of applause for the four of them. <laughs> this concludes our television broadcast, uh, which will be broadcast on Rogers Television. We continue as a club to be thankful to both Rogers Television and to 680 News for their continued support of our club's activities. For any more information, you can get us at canadianclub.org. And other than that, thank you for being with us. This lunch is now adjourned.